Welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast by Local Government Chronicle and TPX Impact. Each month, we bring together leading figures from within and around local government to discuss the sector's future. If you enjoy listening to The Local Authority, hit the subscribe button to have new episodes delivered to your device each month. You can share this podcast with your colleagues by going to lgcplus.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to the Local Authority. This is a podcast from Local Government Chronicle and TPX Impact. I'm Nick Golding, the LGC editor. The Local Authority brings together some of the biggest names in and around local government to discuss some of the biggest issues facing local government. The theme is one of change, how councils can change their area and themselves the better. And today we're discussing children's services. Demand is rising for services for children and young people, and so are the costs. With more children in the care of local authorities, we're asking how councils can run services as effectively as possible. How can they do the most to offer the often vulnerable children the best start in life? And are services joined up and focusing sufficiently on early intervention? On our panel today, we have Steve Crocker, He's the President of the Association of Directors of Children's Services and Director of Children's Services at Hampshire County Council. We have Jill Colbert, the Chief Executive and Director of Children's Services at Together for Children, which delivers children's services for Sunderland City Council. And we have David Eyre, Partner for Local Government at TPX Impact. Steve, just to start with you, um, I was keen to get a, a basic overview from you on what sort of the big areas of pressure in children's services right now? Mm. I think uh, there are a couple of um, uh, areas that in in my inauguration speech are characterised as the alligators snapping around the canoe. And the the two biggies at the moment are around placements and the cost of placements and the availability of placements uh, for children, particularly Teenagers, particularly com- children, teenagers with complex needs and, and risks. And the second uh, big issue is around the workforce and the availability and sustainability of a high quality workforce. Both of those are, are sort of caveated and maybe I'll come back to that in, in due course. I, I mean, for example, in the workforce, I, I think the quality of newly qualified social workers is as high as it's ever been. And I, I, I really see some excellent practice and some excellent practitioners. The issue, I think, is more uh, is about the quantum and secondly, about the retention of those newly qualified social workers. So the, those are the, the, the two biggies. But I think the other thing that, that underpins them both is the escalating demand for children's social care services. And there are aspects to that that are positive uh, because it's around recognition of, of uh, abuse and neglect and, and that can only help to keep children safer. But there are other dimensions to that, which again, we might choose to come back to, which are in particular, and a, and a particular issue that I'm trying to use my presidency to highlight is around the paucity of services 
for children suffering um, poor emotional mental health and, and emotional well-being, which is inadvertently driving a whole level, a, a whole layer of demand our our way in children's social care into services that are not actually set up to deliver those sorts of services. So that's that's the sort of overview. Um, very happy to come back and dive down into some of those points in more detail. Yeah, I, I was quite keen to ask. A, about this rising demand and you know how much is it rising and you just said there you know it is a good thing when issues are spotted earlier but um you know is is it a sign of failure or success that demand is rising so much well unfortunately it's both isn't it and so um it's a sign of success if professionals are recognizing real risk and real uh, neglect and abuse so that's that's the positive side of this it's it's not so positive if um, for society. So the, one of the things that's driving increased demand, and we can't shy away from this, is um, the increase in child poverty, increase in um, children on free school meals. In, in Hampshire, which is um, uh, a relatively affluent uh, southern county, we've had a 50%, 50% increase in children on free school meals. And the, uh, the Isle of Wight, which is the other area that I look after that I'm the DCS for, uh, a 38% increase in free school meals. Now that that increase in poverty is is undeniable. We're also hitting the crunch around the cost of living issues for families. Now, of course, this plays out in difficult ways, doesn't it? Because being being poor does not equal being neglectful. Um, but what it does mean is that families are under incredible stress and strain, and that that then can lead to family breakdown difficulties within families. And that's where the increased demand comes from when adults in the families are, are, are really struggling and then turn to substance misuse or something like that. Or um, there are arguments and that spill over into domestic abuse within, within the family. So all of those things contribute to real increased demand for services. Um, and that can't be dressed up as anything positive. That's just uh, more more need, unfortunately. And increasingly, post-COVID, um, some of those things that we're seeing are, are, are more complex. We're seeing families that perhaps we wouldn't have seen previously and for whom their whole family situation has broken down, so really in crisis. So, yes, it's it's uh, it's it's difficult. There are difficult times. Uh, uh, these are difficult times at the moment in in children's social care, without without doubt. And we we can't dress that up any other way. Uh, of course, demand is rising for other children's uh, other services run by councils, not just children's. Mm. And a lot of those services are actually helping families in different ways, um, and could be to do with things like poverty. I mean, do, do you feel at loggerheads with, for, with with those services when you're tr- trying to get your rightful share of the pie? Or I mean, how do, how does that manifest itself? It, it's, um, I mean, it's, there's 152 different answers to that. But the, what I would say is that children's experiences and children's lives are, are not limited to their social care experience. Um, children need um, libraries to go to, they need parks to play in, they need to be able to cross the road safely, etc, etc. So all of those things that a council does are critical to children's experience, whether they're explicit or, or not, they're sometimes implicit in, and people don't always recognise it. Um, and, you know, people need to be able to drive on the road safely to get their children to a childminder and all the rest of it. it so it's the whole range of, of services that um, councils offer that are important to children. And I don't think 
playing off one uh, uh, one section of the council or, or, or one organisation or, or indeed one bit of the public sector against another helps any of us. We, we, we need the full range of services and we need them all to be functioning well to support our children and our families. So, of course, the objective is to support families, to support children before they come into the care system and hope that they avoid it. Um, how is it that councils can do that? How can they prioritise early intervention? Well, um, it, it's one of the things that um, we certainly have had conversations with Josh McAllister with regards to the the children's social care, the, uh, the independent children's social care review. And we understand and, and believe that if we can intervene at the earliest point in which families are beginning to show distress, then we've got fantastic social workers, fantastic professionals who can help families and, and make a real difference to their lives. But too often we get there and, it, and it's too late. Um, so the, the key to this though, and the, the really tricky bit, uh, it, 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 there's two really tricky bits. One is that to, to achieve this, we're going to have to invest in early intervention and we're going to have to invest long and hard because the outcomes won't be seen for potentially 10, 12, 14 years. We, we should begin to see those outcomes, but it won't be, it won't be immediate and it will be a gradual turning of the, you know, the old expression, turning of the curve or, or, or turning the tank, whichever way you want to look at it, uh, in terms of reducing the numbers of children that, uh, that, that need care. So it needs long-term in, in investment. But the other thing is, and, you know, we have to acknowledge that while we're doing that, you can't turn the tap off in terms of paying for the care that children currently need. And a child taken into care today will potentially need another 17 years of care, particularly if, if we get them, as we hope to do, in a settled placement with a foster carer. And those costs are, are then baked in for 17 years. So you can't then suddenly say, you know, you can't remain in care because we are, we, we're we investing all our money in early intervention. So you've got to do this really difficult trick of, of double funding and double running early intervention services alongside the necessary care services. And then um, the other bit is, is, is about, um, and, and government, government doesn't really work on 10, 12 years <laughs> cycles, does it? It tends to work in three-year cycles. And we can point to things that have had long-term impact. Um, in, for instance, people don't talk about it enough, actually, but the teenage pregnancy strategy was a long-term strategy which actually made a big difference in reducing um, teenage pregnancies, and, it, and successive governments held firm to that for quite a long time. So that is, and, and there is evidence from around the country, from different places. Uh, Sunderland, um, uh, it'd be a great example. I'd like to think we've done some work on this in Hampshire as well about how you get the right intervention at the right time early on. You can make a difference to, to the numbers of children that actually end up coming into care. Um, so it's certainly not a question of purely of money, but can, can you talk about some of the different approaches that, you, that, that there are for early intervention? I mean, how, how could, how can you identify the families and how can you offer them lasting support? Uh, now, I would say uh, that identification is, uh, I, I would say, the $64,000 question, but actually it's much dearer than that. It's, it's, it's um, uh, probably the $640,000 question these days. Because, and one of the things that's bedeviled early help and early intervention 
is the number of, uh, if, of, of false positives, if, if I can use that jargon. So how do you ensure that you offer the right services to the right families? And the tendency, if we look at the experience of, of children's centres, not necessarily sure start, but generic children's centres, was you offered, uh, the, you know, and, and the, the model was progressive universalism. You offer, um, you offer ev- everything to everybody and the ones that need it then, then get it. That's a very crude depiction of it, but that's, that's the essence of it. And then you can work with those that most need um, support um, uh, to, to bring them, uh, to get the support to them at the right time. And I think the, the bit that we, we wrestle with and we have to wrestle with and be be clear about is is our experience was that not all of the families that we needed to reach out to we, we could effectively reach out in, under that scheme so we've got to get better at targeting uh if we've got a limited resource we've got to get better at targeting that limited resource to to families now there are various schemes like the troubled family scheme which has a set of criteria by which you can you can target that's um, one way of doing things. There are historically um, systems in youth justice where you can target children. And targeting is a horrible word, but it, it's about really trying to get the right help to, to, to children and, at, at the right time. But where we know where we do identify those, those children and those families, right? We can surround them by, um, and the thing that is, uh, appears to be most effective is good multi-agency work around the child with a range of services offering support to the family, including support around domestic abuse, if that's prevalent, around substance misuse for the the parents, if that's prevalent, work directly with the children around trauma and and their experiences, uh, and so on, and and so on. And those multi-agency approaches appear to reap good good results and also appear to be effective in diminishing the number of those children that ultimately need to go into care and increasing the number that can safely stay at home. I want to turn to one of those two issues you set out at the start, the high cost of care placements. Mm. I mean, is it an issue which is as simple as there being some companies who are trying to make a a, a very big profit from this? Um, or is there something yes. that councils... Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> but so what can councils do to actually... Um, avoid that and um, spend more money on the children rather than those profits? Yeah, well, I think um, the Competitions and Markets Authority have uh, published the report in in March, I think it was this year, and it showed that some of the independent providers, or indeed most of the independent providers, were making profits in excess of 22% per year. Now, that's an astonishing figure. Um, for most private sector companies, they'd be looking at a profit below, around about 5%, maybe below in this current environment. So that is, uh, we think that's profiteering. That's not profit, that's profiteering. The second thing is it isn't a market. Um, This is, uh, I think the technical thing is it's a monopsony. There's only one buyer and that's the state. And increasingly, there are fewer and fewer um, uh, sellers. Okay, thank you, Steve. Jill, can I turn to you, please? you're um, Chief Executive of Together for Children. Um, can you explain the backstory why it is that you run services for Sunderland City Council? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's probably a relatively well-known fact across certainly the local government and children's services that 
government exercised its powers of intervention in 2015 and onwards with Sunderland City Council and required the council to divest itself really of the day-to-day running of children's services. A process then developed and a process of negotiation really over a period of time whilst the council considered the governance architecture and the, the kind of delivery model for children's services for Sunderland and and was quite brave really because it put statutory social care, children's social care into the what is essentially a wholly owned council company that sits at arm's length. So it put statutory children's services in, but it also put services to support schools. It put what at the time, albeit it was a very limited early help offer, also, you know, services that were there to to support the back office. So in a sense, in crude terms, the company stands almost as a mini council, really, or, you know, a a mini organisation that purely delivers children's services. But we have grown the breadth and scale of the offer over the period of time that the company's been in existence. We are governed by a board. So we have a a number of non-executive directors and um, I'm the a director of the company as well as the director of children's services for the council. So I'm an employee of the council and seconded into the company. Um, I labour that point because I think it's really important because it means the council and elected members still feel that they have the ability really to work hand in glove with the company. And we have both, we have a number of council appointed non-exec directors and independent non-exec directors. We're no longer subject to intervention from government. The direction was lifted in the autumn of last year after we secured a successful offset outcome, uh, but the company model remains at this point in time. I think um, successful offset outcome rather understates it, doesn't it? I mean, what, <laughs> uh, well, what did you get and how, how, um, to what extent is it that your your model which has brought, brought that about? So we secured an overall outstanding judgment. We obviously we're delighted with that. We did get good for help and protection. So more work to be done there, but a great recognition really of the distance that we travelled. The degree to which the model has been, uh, I guess, as a sort of key component of that success is a really interesting question. And of course, cause and effect isn't linear, is it? So, uh, you know, you as you would expect me to say, I think there's been a a kind of cocktail of ingredients, including a really substantial degree of bloody hard work. You can edit out the bloody, but it remains a, a an impassioned uh, use of the word. But I think what the model gave us is is flexibility to go quickly. I'm a dyed-in-the-wool public servant. I've worked in local government for s- some number of years. I've also worked in the NHS and the voluntary sector, but I know how long it can take key decisions to proceed and know how long it can take for a council to gain confidence that you're making the right decisions. So just by way of example, we knew we needed to build our own workforce. We needed to recruit significant numbers of newly qualified social workers. I absolutely agree with Steve. They're some of the most tenacious and skilled social workers we've got in the organisation. That's not because they they're, you know, they're, they're better people than our, than the, the workforce that was there previously or social workers who were longer established. I think it's simply rec- a recognition of the, the way in which universities are kind of moulding and developing social work skills for a modern 
for modern environment. So that we needed to recruit lots of them and we needed to do it quickly because the region had significant difficulties in terms of workforce availability and it, the, the company had famously heavily relied on agency social work, not least because it had two successive inadequate judgments. However, you need a degree of financial investment to to pre- proceed with a workforce strategy like that because essentially you double fund in your workforce, not, not entirely, but almost, um, because, of course, you can't count a newly qualified social worker as a social worker on establishment in totality. The board was able to make a really rapid decision about that. The board was able to support that. And that's enabled us to bring through a level of newly qualified workforce now over a three-year programme, whereby actually we've grown 50% of our workforce through that mechanism. Another example, we we opened two new residential facilities, one children's home and one post-16 supported accommodation for our children during the pandemic. And again, we could do that really rapidly because we did I did not require cabinet approval now there are matters that are reserved by the council. And if we were going to build a 20-storey hotel, clearly I would have required approval. But in broad terms, you know, the council has confidence that they're the right things to do and it gives us the flexibility to proceed. There seems to be this perennial problem in children's services where departments come under pressure, um, people leave, the pressure on the remaining social workers is even greater. Um, Things must have been quite tough when you were requires improvement. So it must have been a fairly gargantuan effort to turn around that workforce morale issue. Yeah, I mean, we were inadequate, Nick, so we weren't, we didn't even, hadn't reached the dizzy heights of requires improvement. We were inadequate. And you're right, morale was was really very problematic. That said, you know, there, there were some and remain some outstanding social workers and colleagues who had stuck with it through thick and thin and actually their services, you know, they're quietly getting on with stuff in the background, frankly, and, and, and had seen some degree of significant improvement. So I think morale was very poor to some degree, not having very many substantive staff probably wasn't that unhelpful because it didn't, once you start recruiting staff who buy in to the journey and who buy into the, to what you're trying to achieve, actually, I think you can you start to create an energy and and actually, you know, most of us come into public service to deliver. Most of us want to do a good job, and also we want to help and fix things. And I think there's something quite alluring for lots of lots of social workers, lots of people, to come into an organisation where they can see the potential and be part of securing improvement. Um, the trick is to get the balance right around managing risk so that, you know, obviously if social workers don't feel safe in their judgments and decision-making, they won't stay. So if they're dealing with the complexity and types of safeguarding issues that children and families are presenting, they can't hang around if they're not, if they're not secure and safe because they, you know, their professional registration is a really important part of who they are. So I think creating safety, putting in loads of pressure points, really where you can, you know, you kind of manage decision making, you manage risk is a very important part of changing and creating a culture that 
that drives an energy and enthusiasm because we you collectively share that risk rather than leaving it with a social worker who decides on that day whether or not they're going to respond to that referral or whether they're going to put it to the bottom of the pile. With regards to early intervention, I mean, ha- have you been successful at moving towards a an early intervention model? And what, what is, what's your secrets for your success that you pass on to other councils experiencing that difficulty? I mean, I, I think, you know, Steve touched on this and, you know, we've, we have seen significant disinvestment in early intervention and prevention over the last 10 years or more. And what that means really is that, of course, uh, you know, perversely, we've just, we've driven statutory demand to a higher level because families have to, they, they, they don't get the help they need until they've hit a really significant level of crisis. So, there was a very narrow offer of support in Sunderland and essentially we've had to build build it from from nothing really, build it with a, a very much a blank canvas using the Strengthening Families, aka Troubled Families model, largely to help us to drive that. But we've got a cocktail of interventions available to, to families now, be that family group conferencing through to the Reducing Parental Conflict Programme, We've got dedicated domestic violence and abuse workers. We've got um, quite a significant early help resource for children and young people, albeit, you know, not not a mirror image of what things like detached youth work might have looked like back in the day. So we have got a very comprehensive offer and and one that is focused really on trying to work with families at the earliest opportunity. That means as well, early help workers sitting in part and parcel of the MASH, the safeguarding front door. How vulnerable is Sunderland with regards to um, its relationship with um, those providing placements? And, you know, are, are you being exploited by big big companies? Um, well, I mean, the first thing I would say, and I, I can't miss an opportunity, we don't use that kind of language anymore. So young people are driving a change in the use of language around care because one of the key things for them that underpins their experience of state intervention is the stigma. So we we talk about care accommodations or care for children. So we do have children who have to live in external care provisions. We are being exploited by the market. And I think Steve and I could do many hours on this point alone. I think that um, in part, the only or key part of the solution is local authorities have to invest very quickly in consuming more and more of their own smoke. So um, we've opened two new provisions in the last couple of years. We've got two more in development. It's not everything. It won't fix everything. And we have to be really careful not to balance the need with the also balance the use of resources. But what strikes me as well is that, and I'm certain Steve will be seeing more of this than we are perhaps in Sunderland, but you know, we talk about consuming our own smoke in terms of building more of our own provisions so that children can live with us. But there's more and more smoke. So we have rapid movement of unaccompanied asylum-seeking children who we, you know, we we cannot find um, places to live for across the country. So, you know, that that means we're often we're often making judgments about, well, where's it best for a child to live when actually there isn't a best outcome or a best option 
We don't know yet what the conflict in Ukraine is going to mean for us. We've got some really complex issues there with children arriving with, I would say, rather opaque legal status to a degree, perhaps looking to the future. So what what are we going to do about some of that? I I think we are we are already in a uniquely difficult position. It is not a position that is shared by adult services to, to the same degree because the primary legislation in the Care Act gives local authorities greater intervention powers in the adult social care residential market. It does not give local authority those powers for children's services. And I think that leaves us extremely vulnerable um, and is unsatisfactory if you think, as Steve said, the purpose of those provisions is to care for vulnerable children. That's what they should be doing. So yes, we are we are in the same boat. We're, we're all in the same boat, but some of us have got a smaller boat or a bigger boat than others. And actually, because we've created quite a substantial amount of our own provision, we are faring better than we would have otherwise done. Well, thank you, Jill. Um, can I turn to you now, David, uh, the local government partner at TPX Impacts? I want to get a sense of your work with various children's services departments around the country. What, what supports do they tend to require? So, uh, funnily enough, that exactly what uh, Steve and Jill have been talking about has been top of the list for a little while now. So high cost, low incidence placements for children and young people is an area where they're crying out for support. Um, big problem across the country, continues to put pressure on council budgets, and it's made, I think, more difficult by the increasing complexity of care and support that young people tend to need as well. Um, linked to that as well, um, transitions is a big part of the conversations that we're having as well, so that transition between children's and adults' care. I say, like, how you effectively manage and align between those services across everything from governance to ways of working to use of data and insight, like getting that really strong and consistent is like something which we uh, hear a lot of uh, need for support around as well. I do think there's some interesting models out there to tackling some of these issues. So for instance, we've just worked with London councils on a uh, collaborative commissioning model for this very issue. And um, I think I'm perhaps slightly more optimistic than Steve around the potential of local authorities coming together to tackle this. Although I do tend to err on the side of optimism with most things. I think like looking at like those areas where there's increased collaboration at a local level, so whether that is London or whether it's South Yorkshire or west of England, Greater Manchester, like where you have that kind of potential for uniformity of approach, I think that can offer opportunities of scale that can help to shape the market and hold providers to account more easily, not saying it makes it easy, but more easily than there. The other, the other side of the conversation that we often have is uh, around the social care workforce as well, but more about like how you can move it from a process-driven role at times into something that is much more human-focused and user-centred as well. So aligned to the needs and expectations of the young people themselves or the families that they're a part of. Thinking particularly back to our work with um, Triborough in, in London uh, around trying to develop a case management tool, which we call Family Story, which, which looked at that and like really seeing that as something which we'd heard from time and time again in the collection of projects around the country. How can you give um, those social workers the tools that allow them to spend uh, much more time with families and have that kind of more person-centered approach and away from the kind of reporting um, side of stuff and the more process-driven side of the of the role? Uh, and like they generally tend to be like where the conversations that we have and the work that we do lie. I was keen to ask you a bit more about this, this work on transitions and 
you know, is it the case that you might have one team dealing with the, the earliest years, then as people get older, there's there's a potential for problems to be forgotten as, as children get older. I mean, how, how do you keep that knowledge going as the child gets older? So I don't necessarily think it's the case that children get forgotten as they get older. I think the challenge, like at least from my experience, lies in the forward planning around some of that. So like starting that conversation about what a transition looks like early enough. So we've seen some great work across the country around this. Um, thinking back actually to some work that Barnet Council did, where they brought like um, external support in to help them think about how you could start those conversations at say 13, 14, rather than say 17 as someone's about to transition from children's to adult services. And I think it's like the, I suppose the headspace and the openness to a, a more ethnographic approach to listening to the lived experience of children and young people that can help with a lot of that. But when you're under significant budgetary pressure, when you're under significant political pressure to get that right, and there's um, a lot of things on your plate, it's really hard to carve out that time consistently. We've heard a lot about the huge cost of of placements with external providers today. I mean, how, what's, it, what's your insight you've got in terms of how councils can get value and value that works in the best interest of the child? Well, this this comes back to something that both Steve and Jill have touched on, meeting that like sufficiency um, duty is really hard when you're like having to spot purchase things and like that drives up cost and when you're doing that on your own and it's hard to negotiate around that I think when you get a larger um, number of local authorities kind of working together you can have that more of a shared voice a shared vision for where it is that you're trying to get to I would say alongside that as well it's like it's also hard to do that if you think within the constraints of the current structures that exist as well and I think that perhaps looking at like alternative models of delivery for achieving like improved outcomes and reduced costs in that area is another thing that could be considered through those kind of like either informal or formal mechanisms. So looking at the work of the London councils, they are setting up a pan-London vehicle, so an agency that sits at arm's length, which can then hold a lot of that and like apply the kind of collective pressure to those to those providers rather than all 32 London boroughs having to do that individually and it feeling like slightly disjointed. So that in turn actually makes me think back to uh, some of the work that I did in Doncaster, slightly tangential, but I do think it's relevant, which was around using social impact bonds and the money from the Life Chances Fund to bring in a model of alternative education. So thinking around that kind of education, skills, economy kind of continuum and like how how difficult it was as a like a local authority alone to do that, but with partners and with external funding and with central government backing, all of a sudden that became a possibility. And I think like bringing those different actors together can be something which um, which might reap some rich rewards as well. I, I'm quite intrigued by these social impact bonds. I mean, it, it, is, is it definitely the case that they work? <laughs> uh, I think the jury's out on that one, if, I, if I'm honest, Nick. Um, I think they're incredibly difficult to make work and I think like they have they have more success in certain areas as well so I mean like uh, children's uh, social care over education for instance is an area where like they've been seen to have more or the criminal justice system as well but like for those uh, areas where it's like 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 education where the I suppose the attribution of outcomes can be slightly more difficult uh, it makes them very hard to to work and to get that kind of the return on the investment that's put in in the first place so I think Doncaster, when they did that one with the 
eighth in the world and first in the UK to do one based around education, which I think goes a long way to showing just how hard they are to actually get off the ground in the first place. And uh, yeah, they're one mechanism, but I'm not saying the only mechanism that we can use to, to deliver change and improvement in this area. Um, you, you brought in education there. We're, we're speaking um, in the aftermath of the Queen's speech, which raised the prospects of councils um, running multi-academy trusts. What's your thoughts on how that can work? Yeah, I mean, that, the education white paper, in my eyes at least, flew slightly under the radar. Like it, it sort of feels like an extension of the current policy to a large extent. The problem that I have with it, I think, is that it deems more structure to be the solution, which has been largely disproven at this point. The the one issue that sits uh, that stands out rather for me is the risk, I suppose, of current maps potentially cherry picking the best schools that could leave local authorities with a situation where they have disproportionately poorly performing sets of schools, and then you, yeah, a very very challenging operating environment to like deliver um, improvement for children and young people. I think. What gives me some hope, uh, potentially, is actually uh, some potentially interesting work that could come out of the levelling up bill now that that's in Parliament. So, again, coming back to that education, skills and economy together rather than just education. Um, like I think if we can join the dots between those more, that feels more promising uh, rather than just more maths and English, which I think is um, yeah, a, a limited view, really. I want to ask about sort of joining up responses and it's been a regular problem in some of the most appalling cases of children's deaths over the years that certain agencies knew certain things but hadn't passed it on and there hadn't been that sort of collective knowledge of what was happening to a child and pooling of, of information. Do you think that, I mean, is there a case that technology can actually help with that now? And there have been some, in the past, there have been some hugely um, ineffective and expensive systems being brought in to try and do this. Yeah, I think uh, I think if anyone ever sees a piece of technology as the panacea to all their ills, they're setting themselves up to fail in the first place. I think that you need good technology and data, but you also need the skills to make sense of it and to apply it effectively. You need the training to help staff navigate their way through it, and you need the kind of ways of working that support the effective use of it. I think that COVID over the past couple of years has opened up um, for instance, data sharing between councils and CCGs around a lot of different areas, which has previously been quite a tricky bridge to cross. And I think like sustaining the the success of that and like those doors that have been opened will be will be really important. Um, but I think yeah, like while I think that that can that can definitely go a long way towards it. There's a, a real kind of skills in the workforce issue. There's a cost of investment and moving away from legacy technology issue. And then there's a ways of working issue, all of which need to be considered together to make sure that you make the most of it. Um, I want to move into the bit again where we sort of discuss this together some of the big issues. And I want to turn back to the um, the workforce issue. And I'll, I'll start with you again, David, just, just on this. Um, I mean, how, how, what's, it, what's, what's your insight in how, into how we can bring, make the, the, the children's social care workforce feel valued um, and, and enjoy the work and, and be successful in the work? I mean, purpose and meaning in the role is is there already. So like, that's usually where you would start, like make sure people have a sense of purpose and meaning in their role, but that is at the heart of good quality social work anyway. I think that manageable caseloads are really important. I think that um, wrapping the right support around and like the cover that um, Jill said, so you have that kind of a collective accountability around some of the decision making can be really helpful. Um, but 
ultimately, I think that when I think about the workforce, I think there's a similar pressure across adult services as well. And like actually having enough people in the right roles at the right times and thinking again, coming back to that importance of transitions and quality of care. Like if you've got a workforce which is potentially under pressure in children's and is under pressure in adults, that shines a quite a challenging light on that situation and it makes it harder to provide that quality of care and support that we'd want on a consistent basis against that backdrop. So I suppose really trying to think about things in the whole across that and the ways that we can work together, not just in children's, but across both of those services, I think feels really important as well. Jill, Jill what do you think could be done both at a local and a national level to, to, to bring about that workforce change? I mean, I think I touched on some of it earlier, Nick, in that, you know, there is a need really to strengthen the pathway uh, when students graduate from university so that they they feel there's a clear destination for them. I think too many students embark on an undergraduate degree not quite knowing what the future holds and we could be a lot better at helping universities to to you know show and touch and and help students to get a sense of confidence about how how welcoming and how well received they'd be but clearly you know there is absolutely a need to manage risk and manage the safety of of social work practice when people are imposed but i think really good wraparound professional development and meaningful learning and development opportunities are, are critical. So, so that, you know, we continue to invest, we continue to, to stretch and challenge. And I think, you know, that's something where perhaps we haven't, we haven't engaged as a sector as well as we could collectively. But of course, there's a, always a resource requirement and those budgets in local government for things like learning and development are often seen as the low-hanging fruit when the the kind of grim reaper knocks on the door and you have to find efficiency savings. So we have to protect the investment in really high quality early help and social work practice. Steve, what, what what's your appeal on workforce, both the, the sector in the year of your presidency and also to ministers about what needs to be done? Well, I, I have to say I agree with uh, both David and, and, and Jill and what they said, and I really need a, a strong career pathway for social workers. But I'm going to add one thing in on top of that, which is possibly slightly more controversial. But uh, I, I feel in terms of the social work workforce, we are at that point of intervention that we were with um, children's homes about four or five years ago, and we can't miss the opportunity. And in particular, I'm referring to social work agencies some of whom are owned by the same sort of rapacious companies that own the, the, place, the placements. And I think we've got to intervene here. And there, there are ways to do this. And I, my plea would be that rather than a one-year ASYE, I think it needs to be, actually needs to be a five-year programme to really get people um, established with a good set of skills and knowledge. And the second thing is that I would say that there's a role for the regulator here in terms of Social Work England I think that to be for that period, you need to be uh, your registration needs to be done through an employer and an accredited employer so that that would mean that there's no benefit to, to hopping into lucrative agency work um, in some parts of the country. And, and London and the southeast is probably possibly the worst. It may not be, but, I, but it. it, it we are seeing what is effectively the individualization of, of social work by agencies hoovering them up at a certain point in their career, getting them 
quite big money, actually. Um, but the long-term consequences of that are that they're they're not they're not embedded within an organisation. They they hop about to different places, and that's not good. That's not good for children. And I and I question the ethical basis of on which some people are doing that. And it's not good. Ultimately, it's not good for them. Then um, they need to to settle and 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 work a, a career and and build up skills and knowledge. So there's. We've, we've got to tackle this issue uh, around the social social work agencies, I'm afraid, and there are various different ways, one of which I've outlined. But again, we, we, we need to get that intervention. It's probably, again, got to happen at some sort of national level, as, as well as a coordinated regional and local approach. Um, we're coming very close to the end now, but I do have one final question for you. Um, David, I'll start with you. I mean, what does success look like in children's services in your experience? Just a small one to finish then. <laughs> Success looks like, I think, person-centred services. So, like, again, I'm going to come back to the idea of putting the voice of children and young people at the heart of it. You see that done really successfully in good quality children's services and children's charities, like the Children's Society produced the Good Childhood Index and, like, utilising that kind of really rich insight into their lives and thinking about how we can use that to inform the services that are delivered or commissioned and centred around their lives, I think, is the gold standard for me. Jill, I'll ask you the same question in a slightly different way. I mean, maybe with regards to a particular anonymised, presumably, family, I mean, what, what, what is your experience of what success looks like in children's services? I think that for a, a family, being able to be a family, being able to care for your children, being able to be optimistic and have a sense of purpose for the future, all of those things would would be great measures of success and i certainly have seen some of that in the in terms of the work that we've done with families and being able to connect families to each other rather than the state frankly is the thing that drives people i think in terms of creating meaningful change and steve again i agree with everything jill said i perhaps if we uh, if i Suggested from an organisational perspective, it's it's about stability, long term planning, long term career structures for social workers, and a, a model of practice and intervention with families that people really buy into and is effective about creating change. Well, that brings us to the end of this particular podcast. So, thank you to our panel: Steve Crocker, Jill Colbert, and David Eyre. We will see you again soon. This podcast was brought to you by LGC and TPX Impact. Local Government Chronicle, or LGC, is the leading title for senior local government officers and the authoritative voice of the sector. To subscribe to LGC for full online and print access, go to lgcplus.com. TPX Impact is a change agency on a mission to build 21st century public sector institutions which are catalysts for change in the internet and climate era to radically improve outcomes for communities. For more information, go to tpximpact.com. TPX Impact, transformation that matters.